welcome to the next episode of Splitting Cases, sponsored by Murray's Brewing. We're in the courtyard of the Courthouse Hotel with a man with an excellent head of hair. It doesn't stop at the head of hair. It doesn't stop at the head of hair, but uh, there is a face of (laughs) hair. Yeah, it goes down through the sideburns and around the chin. It's an asset. Cheers. Jeremy Dillon, host of my favourite album, and film director, and man of many talents. G'day. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Um, Thanks for meeting me halfway by uh, coming (laughs) down to, from one newie to another, from (laughs) down to Newtown for this. Well, we only go to places beginning in new, so. Okay. It was either this or New York. So. Exactly. This is probably the halfway mark. It, yeah. This fits our budget a little bit. What's your chosen subject? I decided that the right balance between just sort of anoraki uh, nerding out knowledge levels and sort of anecdotes that I could throw in would be <laughs> to talk about um, Elvis Costello, arguably the greatest singer-songwriter of the past 30 years. Huge call, but I think that's pretty apt. Well, I think if you're a fan, you've got to be prepared to make those big calls. Yeah, that's true. It's like when we talk about UMI. But we won't do that right now, though. Well, you guys are kind of the unofficial UMI podcast. <laughs> it's it's hard not to do a podcast without a mention, but I'm pretty sure this is sort of a record for me slipping it in. Yeah, well, there's definitely um, some Elvis Costello UMI references we could chuck in. Well, we could certainly... like The comparison could be made between... Uh, Tim Rogers and Elvis in terms of the amount of words that they can fit in a line. That's true. Yeah. I, I was never hugely into Elvis Costello. I got into him maybe five years ago, but I was always aware of him through different media and popular culture, film clips, his appearance in Spice World. and. Yep. Um, I like how you went straight to Spice World and well, Austin Powers. <laughs> oh yeah, Austin, like that, Powers Austin Powers probably well. would have been most people's go-to. Um, and not that, not that you need to throw this reference in, but the Voodoo Child reference, the Pump It Up sample. Sample was it more like a like a homage in the Rogue Traders song? Well, you mean homage as opposed to it's either a sample or it's plagiarized. So. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I was being kind. <laughs> um, I'm not sure to be honest. Yeah, so it took me a long time to get into Elvis. For me, I think it was like another library story. For me, it was like you know, as a kid trying to explore what's been released in the past reading Q magazine. Oh, Elvis Costello's a thing. I'll go check out some of his stuff. Yeah. So it was probably that and Austin Powers. And then <laughs> references to My Aim Is True in yeah. Guys, Girls, Guitars, um, which was sort of my link in. Yeah. So what was your introduction to Elvis Costello? Well, most of my musical taste sort of starts with the Beatles and branches out from there. I like that. It's good. It's a very good place to start. Well, they, they kind of encompass so much... Um, like genre-wise and the connections either as influencers or influenced or as peers of pretty much everyone else who's worth listening to. And Paul McCartney and Elvis Costello wrote together and recorded together and did song like co-writes on each other's records um, in the late 80s. And I think that was my initial discovery of Elvis came out of being aware of that. And I think I would have started with those songs... And then I went back to the start. This is like, I was about 16, 17, bought My Aim Is True, bought this year's model. Yeah. And then 
Like he's, he's got a fairly intimidating catalogue. I think a lot of people are sort of hesitant to start getting into Elvis because they don't know which records to go with. Yeah, I, I must admit, it's probably only the first maybe three to five albums that I'm really familiar with. I kind of bowed out. Because uh, for that reason, it's like, oh, this is a bit overwhelming. Well, I think oh, it's funny. I was having this conversation about Elvis um, with this guy I know in LA about a month and a half ago. And the comparison that he made, which I thought was really apt, was with Woody Allen. Like, there's a few, like, there's like four or five Woody Allen I'm films. I'm worried where this is going to go now. <laughs> yeah. No, in the work. <laughs> okay. The okay. work. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like, everyone loves Annie Hall, everyone loves Manhattan. Like, there's a yeah. few Woody Allen films that everyone who likes Woody Allen thinks are great. And then he's made 600 other films and everyone's got their own favourites. Yeah. So some people really like, you know, Vicky Cristina Barcelona or Midnight in Paris or Hannah and Her Sisters or whatever. Mm. And it's the same with Elvis. Like, everybody who likes Elvis loves My Aim is True, This Year's Model, Get Happy, Imperial <laughs> Bedroom. But then outside of that, you know, it's like some people love Spike, some people love The Delivery Man or National Ransom. I have to go with Spike purely for God's comic. I think yeah. the chord changes in that are beautiful and there's some really nice background harmonies in there that, like, I feel, you know, Elvis's voice and his tone can be patchy at times, but I feel his backup harmonies in there are just so strong. Is that record you with The Roots a couple of years ago as well? And that Wise Up good. Ghost, yeah. yeah. I didn't actually hear that. Oh, I think you'd like that. Yeah? That's right up your alley. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's interesting the way... Uh, the word, I mean, people use the word experimentation, and I know he doesn't like it because it makes him sound like people. It's like he's not taking it seriously, or they're like some kind of like dalliances with. Yeah. But he has collaborated with lots of uh, other interesting people from outside the obvious zone of his own lane, yeah. and the roots is is one of that. I mean, and him and Questlove have a lot in common in time. In, sort of like their musical curiosity and mm. sort of depth of knowledge of music from before their own Questlove time. Questlove just seems like a giant music fan. Well, yeah. that's precisely what I was about to say. It sounds like that's because Elvis is just a music fan in general. Therefore, all this stuff just, I guess, gets him off. Like, you don't want to be doing the same thing again and again. It's, yeah. like, uh, it's like Neil Young in, you know, there's deviations from what he's done, but it's all out of, I'm interested in this, so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, I mean, he did that record with Bert Bacharach as well, and, I mean... Yep, Painted From Memory. Yeah, it's it's like he just feels like an odd reference point for someone who came up where Elvis Costello did, but, you know, he's a fan. Yeah, I mean, the Bert Bacharach thing, I know, I know Elvis, like, even growing up, was a huge Bert Bacharach fan, and hearing in, in the UK a lot of it was, like, the Cilla Black recordings of the Bert Bacharach, Howard David songs. Yeah. And to go from that... I mean, so much of Elvis's career has been him collaborating with the people he, who influenced him when he was growing up, the people he admired, the people who shaped where his music came from, like Burt Bacharach or Alan Toussaint, who there's New Orleans, who passed away uh, not too long ago. But yeah, he did. It's a pretty unique position to be yeah. in, really, to you know, have your idols or your, your teachers, in a way, come and play with you and record with you. Like, yeah. It's pretty cool. It's funny, like he said when he was writing with McCartney, people would assume what each of them were bringing to the songs, and yeah. it was actually the opposite, because 
you know, he's riding with Paul McCartney because he loves Paul McCartney, so he's the one trying to get he's like... He's mccartney it up. Yeah, he's the one trying to like make it sound like a Beatles record and yeah. McCartney's riding with Elvis because he's into what Elvis it's is doing. It's not a Beatles record. It's not and, what yeah. he usually goes for. So it's... It's, it's interesting that way. And yeah. when he's writing, you know, with Alan Toussaint or with Burt Bacharach or, you, you know, with, with any of these, these legends that he grew up with and who are now, he's now sort of a peer with. Yeah. And he, he doesn't lose the admiration thing, but he can sort of play on that level and not, and it, it never seems to really intimidate him in the creative process. Well, you could listen to Veronica and say that, yeah, I can hear the McCartney-ness in that, but you could say that about Oliver's Army as well. Exactly. You know, there's a certain... There's a certain influence that comes through in him, regardless of who he's working with. Yeah, it's just songwriting. It's chord changes. It's melody. You know. Well, Oliver's Army is. I was thinking about that on the way over here today, and this idea of because everyone with Elvis, everyone talks about his lyrics. Yeah. And I think sometimes the people sort of forget how great a melody writer he is. Well, that's what I'm all about with music. It's not lyrics for me. It's always melody. Yeah. It's interesting, like, because I know you guys, which we were talking about a second ago. Huge UMI fans, and again, like it's sort of same with Tim Rogers, like someone who his his lyrics are so dense, and that's kind of what he's thought of mainly as a lyricist. But yeah. the the musical side of the band is so strong too, oh, and that can yeah. be sort of forgotten. Yeah, and he's someone who's uh, Tim Rogers. We're talking someone who is not very, you know, he's very self-deprecating about his own voice. But I feel like him and Elvis Costello may not have technically the best voices, but they know what they're going for and the, the emotion comes through in it. Like, they're very similar in that way, but they both have great melodic chops, but maybe not the voice they want to pull it off. Well, it's interesting with Elvis that I feel like the older he's gotten, the more rounded his voice has become. His bottom yeah. end is really... And there's stuff that he wrote like in 1978, that he really has the voice to sing properly now. It's just so fucking rare. It's usually the other way around. Yeah. And especially like any of the sort of more country-leaning stuff, mm. he, him singing that as a, like a 28-year-old, it, it like the songs were strong enough for it to still work, but when he st- does that stuff now live or if he's reworked them on, on, a, on a record or on a, on a, at a show... It, it feels like it suits him a lot better these days. That's the same with anyone who sort of um, feels in their writing a bit older than their own age, you know, that when they are actually of that age, it just, especially lyrically, just slips into that. Well, I think it's beautiful. country music, uh, probably more so than any other genre, does sort of lean itself to older-sounding voices because it's like, OK, I believe that. That sounds true yeah. because yeah. they've lived it. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, it's not the music of... Like rock and roll traditionally is the music of teenage hedonism. So if you sound like a 24-year-old, that's kind of appropriate. <laughs> yeah, you don't really want to sound world-weary. <laughs> yeah. You can't really pull that off at, at 24. Well, and the, and the song... Unless you're Lou Reed. He's yeah. always sounded world-weary. Yeah. The subject matter, like, if you, do, it's, you don't want to be like Ringo Starr singing You're 16, You're Beautiful in Your Mind when you're 32. <laughs> you don't want to be Mike Love singing Be True to Your School when you're 75, you know? Although the funny thing was, I saw the Beach Boys on the 50th anniversary tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Mike Love still sounds like he did when he was like 22. So. Yeah. But while, but while, okay, while he sounds sounds like he did when he was 22, it just feels weird him singing that stuff. Though Brian Wilson sounds nothing like he did in the late 60s, it just still feels right him singing that stuff. 
Well, I just think it's really odd that people have this expectation of artists that they're going to sound the same, like, <laughs> 50 years on. Like, you people go, oh, I went to see this band. Oh, they're no good anymore. Singer can't... Doesn't hit those same it's notes. It's like talking about... It's like, is that your expectation? That like someone yeah, 50 Olympic years later. Sounds like they did when they were 20? Yeah. Like, you don't expect an Olympic athlete or a sports person to perform the same at 50, 60 that they would at 20, you know? Yeah, it's like, just be appreciative that you're seeing a living legend and just be happy with that. Yeah. And that's one of the things, to take it back to Elvis, that I've always really admired is that... So professional, trying to get things on track. <laughs> well, he has... It's not even like an acknowledgement that he's older, but he's he's recontextualised a lot of his old music to work for the mode he's performing in at the yeah. time rather than just trying to recreate the sound of him yeah. with, with the attractions as a, a drunk 30-year-old. Yeah. What's probably more attractive to him as well. It's like, do you yeah. really want to be, you know, straining yourself to try and play things how you did 30-odd years ago? Yeah. Or... It's like there's a lot of people who, who move into different genres with their records that take their back catalogue with them and just transpose it for that genre or feel, you know? It's almost it's like anyone doing an MTV Unplugged performance. You've got to work out how to frame something that wouldn't normally work in that sphere. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why... I mean, Elvis is... I've probably paid to see Elvis in terms of, like, actual serious concert ticket prices. Like, like I've paid to see bands I'm mates with more. That's like, you know, like the, the Preachers. I've probably paid to see them, I don't know, a dozen times. Yeah. But those were, t- like, $10 tickets at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with Elvis, I've seen him, I think, six times. Um, and you can keep coming back because he's not... It's not like he's going to play the same greatest hits set yeah. each time and if you see him like you see him solo you see him with the imposters you see him with the sugar canes or with whatever configuration he's playing in even if he plays a lot of the same songs there'll be different arrangements different versions and there'll be a real spontaneity and a genuine enthusiasm for him to still play those old songs because he's not it's not rote it hasn't become this sort of chore for him to do it I think that's that's what you want to see in anyone you see live you know some kind of enthusiasm and spontaneity and lust for what they're doing I just think like for like Elvis in particular I guess he's probably got a group of fans that are super adoring and they're willing to go those places with him. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like you liken it to someone like Dylan, who obviously has like lots of big fans himself, but the populace are going and then just complaining of the reconfiguration of songs. It's like the Neil Young and Crazy Horse tour with my like so many of my older family members went to that tour. How many years ago? Three-ish years ago? About that, yeah. Nearly on Crazy Horse Let's Tour. And they went to see him at the Encent, and they all walked away complaining and bitching. And I'm like, what do you think he was going to play? He wasn't going to play Harvest in full, you know? No. Harvest doesn't really lend itself to a big rock band, do you realise this? Because I don't think he's... Like, I think Elvis Costello in popular culture and in, in you know, his fan base is a huge and influential artist, but he just hasn't quite crossed over to that level of, say, Dylan or Young that, yeah, you get my aunties and uncles going to see him when they don't go to gigs ever. It's interesting, though. I think he does um, cater to that a bit. He, I've heard him say, like, especially talking about putting festival sets together. Oh, festival sets, I feel, yeah. are different, though, because that you're always going to get people who have never seen you and maybe yeah. never heard of you. Well, you'll say, he said something like in a lot of interviews where he's talking about like configuring his shows, the opening few songs and the closing few songs are catering to the real, the most casual fans. Like, he'll, op- like he'll make sure radio radios in the first couple of songs. Yeah. 
pump it up and what's so funny about peace, love and understanding of the closers and then he can pretty much do what he wants. Like, yeah. making a real because effort for it to be entertaining. But yeah, currency in the first couple of songs. He's earned the patience of the fans. Least, you know, this group of people have got what they wanted to see so let's go here for yeah. this group of people. And because he's like, placated the wrong, is the wrong word, but because he's like, He's, he's entertained. He's, he's entertained. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he's given and he's he's acknowledged the idea that they might be there because they know those songs. So he's yeah. not. He, he's taken away the kind of trepidation that some people might have when they turn up a show, going like, "When's uh, he going to play this?" Yeah. yeah, is he going to play any songs I know? Yeah, which sometimes doesn't happen. Well, I was like that pumpkin show you went to where they played uh, what record was it? All the way through. Uh, Oceana. They played Oceana. 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 Yeah. It was like a. Yeah. yeah, they played that record all the way through and there were people almost walking out because they weren't playing the hits. And You know, it's been billed as a two-set gig. Yeah. You know? I just think people are fickle. They, people they are just, fickle. They True. just want what they expect the show to be, not what the show actually is. And it's been interesting, like, the success of people doing full albums in sequence as a thing and, yeah. I, and, they, and people who can sell more tickets than usual doing that because people are really secure they know they're going to hear these songs they know yeah. and they love because it's literally built as we are playing these 12 songs for sure. We'll do other stuff, but you know 100% that if you go to the, like, UMI, the Hi-Fi, what was it, the Daily Double yeah. Tour or whatever it was called? Alley Daily Double? Because yeah, when they played all it's of combination of those Hi-Fi Way and Alley Daily yeah. in full, in sequence, and then like an, an encore set, People like were coming along knowing that they were going to get those two records that they really love. But people that would not have seen them since maybe Dress Me Slowly, you know? I don't know. I'm in two minds about those sort of tours. Like, you know, it's good that you get to hear what you want to hear, but also one of the joys of a live show is that it's unexpected. Hmm. Like, yeah. if you want to listen to the record, you can listen to the record at home. I'm going to see you. Surprise me. Show, going show to the Taronga Zoo show after those... those three or four gigs we saw on that tour was awesome because you had no idea what they were going to throw out. And I guess they were probably, after that tour, <laughs> they were... I'm just laughing at how much UMI is in. It's coming back into it, right? It was, inevit it was inevitable. inevitable. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting to tie it back to Elvis. He's been doing this tour, I think they're, it's on a break or they're putting it to bed for a while now, Yeah. called the Spectacular Spinning Songbook. Which I think is a fantastic fucking idea. I love that idea. And what it is, for people who don't know, which I'm assuming is most people listening to this, is it, there's a giant Wheel of Fortune-style wheel on stage, and it's got the names of about 50 Elvis songs on it. And what happens is that El like Elvis and the Apostles will come out, they do like an opening salvo of four or five songs, and then they'll get people up from the audience to spin the wheel. And whichever song it lands on, the band has to play it. So you get, like, the set list is completely different every night. There'll be some songs that never come up, and sometimes they'll come up twice, which normally means they'll get them to re-spin it, but then sometimes they'll go, like, let's play this other version we've got of this song. <laughs> like, let's do the 6-8 waltz version of Pump It Up or the folky version of Every Day I Write the Book. That is awesome. And then there's, like, a Joker thing, I think, was one of the slots, and that meant that the, the person could just ask for whatever they wanted to hear. And the band is so great. Like Elvis's band, it's Pete Thomas on drums, Davey Farragher on bass, Steve Naive on keyboards, 
Steve and Pete have been playing with him since 1978. I was going to ask how long he's had the same band. So they're, you know, well-versed in all those tracks. Yeah, and it's, it's actually really incredible to watch them live. And for you see Elvis calling audibles all the time. Like, they'll get towards the end of a song, especially on that tour, because I saw... I, saw, I only saw one of those shows, but I've, I've seen like the concert film and everything. And they'll get to the end of this song, and then it, it just like Elvis has had the idea, like, now this is what we should do now is go into a into a Who cover at the end of this because it fits with that song. And he just turn around to the band and then call out a song, like literally he'll be like he'll he'll turn around and go like, radio, radio, one, two, three, four, boom, and they'll go straight into this other song that they had no idea was on the cards. Five it's seconds kind of thing earlier. You can only do when you have a rapport with these people and you have a working relationship of so many years. Yeah, and there—it's a band with such an incredible range as well. Like Pete Thomas, the drummer, who I've had on uh, my podcast, and I, I caught up recently with when I was in LA. He's my favourite drummer of all time, and part of the reason why is that. While he's got his own style and he's really distinctive and his feels and his, the swing he's got are really identifiable and unique to him, he kind of encompasses all the other drummers I like as well. Like he can play really straight, funky, Al Jackson Jr. R&B stuff and he can do like the, the Ringo swing and the feels and the, and the, like the straight, like yeah. straight ahead Charlie Watts stuff or the crazy Mitch Mitch feels and... Mitch Mitchell feels and yeah and like the whole the whole band has that kind of versatility and that's mm. one of the reasons why they can go and do this show where they, they'll end up playing any one of like 200 songs in a night like whatever Elvis feels like whatever the audience feels like yeah and you can only do that as you said when you've got that band to have that history and rapport that kind of thing is invaluable to someone like Elvis Costello or someone who's written that kind of back catalog songs to have someone and to have a band who knows it inside out already, you know? You can just pick up on it and go. Well, I guess that's the difference between those sort of shows and the we're playing this album front to back, like we were talking about. We're going to learn these 12 songs yeah. inside out that we haven't played eight of in years. And we're going to play them exactly like the record, which yeah. is another thing that's really <laughs> antithetical to Elvis's yeah. approach. Although he's done that, he did My Aim Is True for a charity show like eight or nine years ago with the band that he recorded it with which yeah. was a band from California called Clover which really? be, which ended up becoming Huey Lewis in the news no way and Huey Lewis doesn't play on the record because obviously they had a singer yeah. and they didn't need he's the harmonica player in Clover and they didn't need any harmonica on the Elvis record but it was this Californian band who were in England and they cut My Aim Is True. It was before Elvis had his own band, before he got the imposters together. I fucking love this. I did not know this at all. I love Hip To Be Square. Sorry, it's my... It's oh, I, my jam. Great records. <laughs> yeah. I love how that was just, like, perfectly up your alley. So <laughs> up my alley. And you can probably guess the sort of relationship we have. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's the thing. Like, it's the only time Elvis has really done anything like that where he's, like, faithfully recreated a record. And, yeah. like, even down to the to the tempos like he talked about doing that record in sequence and the drummer counting off like Mer the second song on the album Miracle Man and him yeah. going like shit is this song really this slow because yeah. they've been playing them all over time yeah. it evolves yeah but it's it was nice though sorry 
No, it was good. nice, though, that, you know, he's doing it as a one-off, he's doing it for charity, and he's doing it with the original band, who I'm sure then, as Huey Lewis and the News, were pretty busy. Well, it's, it's interesting, like, there's not... I can't remember how many of them actually ended up in Huey Lewis yeah. and the News, like that whole band. When they played together as Clover... And when they played together with Elvis, like the drummer had retired, so Pete okay, Thomas sat yeah, in yeah. on the drums. And John McPhee, the guitar player, is now in the Doobie Brothers. Ah, awesome. So we, I was involved in this festival called the Denny Blues and Roots Festival mm. a few years back. And we had Elvis and the Imposters on the bill, and we also had the Doobie Brothers on the bill. Yeah. And they were sort of like following each other around <laughs> from like in, in Bar and Bay Blues Fest and, yeah. and Festival in New Zealand and... WA and stuff yeah. and Mc, John McPhee was getting up and playing some of those Miami's True songs with um, Elvis and the Imposters. Nice. That is so cool. Yeah. I feel like Miami's True as a record anyway is kind of a time and a place type thing. Like, would you really want to redo that sort of youthful sound? Like, that's sort of its charm. Yeah. And so, like, you know, only doing it for a charity makes sense to me. Like, and it's and it's it's nostalgic in a way that Elvis has never really been comfortable with or interested in. Yeah. He's not really interested in recreating the past. He loves reinterpreting the past, his past and the past of music in new and interesting ways, but he's never really been interested in like putting something in a glass case and recreating it exactly as recorded. Can I ask a really um, naive question? A Steve Naive question? I'm assuming that Elvis Costello is not his real name. No. No. It's like Declan something? Declan McManus. Declan Kelly? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Declan McManus. Yeah. Okay. Why Elvis Costello? Well, I think the Costello is his paternal grandmother's name, surname. Okay. It's actually Costello because it's Irish. Ah, Costello. And he, like... His dad was a musician. Yeah. yeah. So he... And when he was starting out, he went out... As, as Declan McManus and he I, the quote I'll try and get this right because I really like the quote is um, <laughs> people would turn up to the shows expecting to see someone in a cable net sweater playing wailing songs that's great so then he went by um, DP Costello yeah. is, I think Patrick is his middle name so it was DP instead yeah. of De- Costello instead of Declan McManus and then his first manager Jake Rivera was the one who suggested going with Elvis because it was like something shocking and attention-grabbing. Yeah, because there was only really one Elvis. Yeah, who was still around when he adopted the name but yeah. died not long after Miami's True came out. I mm. think that's the chronology in it. So that's where the name came from. Actually, and this is so off-skew, um, Elvis is still an odd name for people to be called, but also there, we went to the dog beach yesterday and there's this little girl chasing after her puppy and going, Elvis, Elvis, come back here. And I thought... That's a really weird name for a dog. My friend's got a bird named Ringo. <laughs> That's a good name for a bird. It is kind of a good name for a bird. Yeah. Elvis just felt like a weird name for a like a six-year-old to be chasing down a puppy on the street. I mean, I can't, you know, cast any stones given my cat's name's Morrissey. So that is perfect. That's a perfect name for a cat. Well, I thought cats so. could form a band. <laughs> you know, like so difficult, never yeah, does moody. what you expect. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was apt. Hard to deal with yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, other weird things I know about Elvis Costello that I know probably more than his music. He's married to Diana Krall. Yeah, I mean I've never met her, but a friend of mine's been playing bass with her for the last couple of years, and says yeah. she's like incredible to work with. So. Oh yeah, she would be. Yeah. So what about um, late era Elvis? Like if there's like five songs that you need to educate someone on in that later period, what would they be? 
Well, this is interesting because I get asked this sometimes, like people who know I'm a big Elvis fan and like want to try and get into some of his more recent stuff, what they should go with. And because it's such a diverse um, like group of records, it kind of depends what you what direction you're coming in from. The albums that are that are some of my favourites of his, a lot of which are more recent. There was a record that he did a few years ago called Secret Profane and Sugarcane that T Bone Burnett produced, mm. and he made that in 2008 with this band called the Sugarcanes, and it was all these. It was not a bluegrass record, but these are all players who come from the bluegrass world. Like my friend Jim Lauderdale, who I made a documentary about a few years ago yeah. that I interviewed Elvis for, and like Jerry Douglas and Dennis Crouch and Stuart Duncan and Jeff Taylor. It's basically all the people who were the best in the world at their respective uh, instruments. And then that band, that is the best gig I've ever been to, is that band at the Liverpool Philharmonic Hall about six years ago now. Mm. And it's just such an incredibly... It's like, it's a full-on, it's a rock and roll show, but an entirely acoustic rock and roll show. And the, the energy and the rhythms and the back and forth and the sympathetic nature of all those players doing rock music acoustically is really interesting and really fascinating. So if you come, if you like, if you come from the bluegrass world or like you like sort of acoustic string band music, that's a great record to go for. National Ransom, the record following that, is much is a much more diverse record. Actually, the only one of the more recent ones I've heard or paid attention to when it came out. And that's a great record. I think that's one of Elvis's best records. It's one of his most ambitious in terms of the the depth and the diversity within the album. And th- that sort of goes from like noisy, grungy rock and roll songs like the title track, which Mark Rebo, Tom Waits, guitar player, plays on. Um, to almost semi-bluegrass stuff like a song called Dr. Watson, I presume. And, I mean, I think that's a great record. There's a record he made called The Delivery Man about 12 years ago, largely recorded in uh, Memphis, I think, and maybe Oxford, Mississippi. And that's kind of like a garage record with a lot of, like, Americana influence on it. It's kind of got that sort of trashy swing like sound like a Lucinda Williams record. I think that's the one I need to go and listen to that I haven't heard. That is a really great record. That's got probably, which for a long time, my favourite Elvis Costello song, a song called Bedlam on it, which is also a great showcase for the band, for the imposters on that. I'm definitely checking that one out. Yeah, so those two um, are probably National Ransom... And the weather wow. has turned. So. The weather has turned, and if you can hear that, it's yeah. uh, the rain dripping from the umbrella above us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. National Ransom and The Delivery Man, I think, are the two okay. real, real cream of the crop of the recent stuff. But yeah. the record with the roots, which we mentioned earlier... Which you recommended to me. Yeah. Uh, Wise Up Ghost, which I recently sort of did a podcast about, basically, because I was talking <laughs> to... Steve Mandel, the producer of The Roots, who I know, mm. in New York, and we were talking about Blood and Chocolate. Actually, if you consider that, that late period, it's not really, because it's like 10 years into Elvis's career, yeah. but Blood and Chocolate, amazing record. It's kind of like the sequel to this year's model, okay. but it, like he describes it as this year's model made by uh, the d- angry, bitter, divorced <laughs> um, 32-year-old version of the guy who made this year's model. <laughs> but it's like the last proper attractions record. Yeah. 
Also, it, late period, but any artist is completely relative to where you are talking from. Yeah, like I think of late period stones as being like black and blue. Yeah. And that's in the first 15 years of their career. It all depends on where you come from. Yeah. But Blood and Chocolate, King of America, if you like the more Americana um, side of things, which came out 86, same year as Blood and Chocolate, but completely the other end of the sonic spectrum. But it really depends what direction you're approaching this from, where your tastes lie. But there's, there's great stuff throughout the catalogue and there's interesting stuff and the more time the spend, you spend with him, there's going to be something you'll find worth listening to or interesting on every record. Yeah. Well, there's probably those times where you maybe don't like something initially at first or it doesn't grab you, but because you're such a big fan, you can rediscover it later on and go, oh, I didn't really notice that before. Or Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the joy of liking an artist that's got a, you know, a collection of work so big. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he's going to follow his muse basically wherever it takes him. I think it's ballsy. Definitely. Yeah. All right, I think we can wind that up. That's pretty excellent. Uh, where can we find my favourite album and more of your work? Uh, my favourite album is available anywhere you might like to get podcasts iTunes, your podcast app on your iPhone, or your whatever other kind of phone you've got. Just search my favourite album, it'll come up. If you've found this, you know how to find podcasts. I should <laughs> certainly hope so. Um, I I have yet to have Elvis on the show, but you know, I've had Pete Thomas on the show, Steve Mandel, people with connections, people have talked about Elvis records, so if you're a fan. So you're on the periphery. Are, so. Yeah. And if you like you or my, which I'm assuming you do if you listen to this podcast, I've had... Well, by, by the time this comes out, I may have had the whole band on the show, but I've had Tim, Rusty, and uh, Davey on. And uh, my documentary, Jim Lauderdale, The King of Broken Hearts, which Elvis is in, can be found by searching Jim Lauderdale documentary on Google or going to jimlauderdalemovie.com, available for, for purchase online. And that's really my main stuff. I am working on another documentary at the moment but I'm not allowed to talk about who it's about or when it's coming out. So As soon as that comes out, we'll, uh, we'll share it online. Yeah. If you want to find anything more from us, go to splittingcases.com. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers.